Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Okay, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your your presence with us today. Thank you for the fact that you are guiding this study, and it's not my thing. I'm just kind of showing up. Uh, Just like everybody in this room and on the Zoom call here, we're just showing up for you. We're showing up for what you have for us and that we might turn around what you have for us to glorify you in the days to come. It's not just knowledge. It's not just filling up our heads with facts and figures to to puff our chests up, but Lord, to to knock us down a couple notches potentially and allow us to humbly uh, partake in this thing called giving you glory. Lord, we're looking at specifically the first age of the church, the first 100 years, the first, the takeoff, where the plane took off the field, But more than that, I'm in awe at what you did with so little few people. And I just kind of get giddy thinking about what you could do with these people um, in the days ahead. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys, okay, well, here's here's the the fifth fifth installment. Uh, We're in in Acts 5 um, today. We're going to end up in the first part of 5. But we're gonna go, we're gonna start back in the tail end of four. If you guys remember, we t- kind of took off about four twenty four chapter four verse twenty, and we're back in this uh, this oh scene, if you guys will. It's like a theater <laughs> scene where there's some serious drama happening. And if you guys remember, there was the Sanhedrin council circled around these individuals, and uh, these individuals happen to be two very important people. Who are they? Quiz time. Peter Peter and John. Good job. You get a sticker. (laughs) Nobody's getting stickers, but I keep saying that. You you guys have these two people in your minds, right? You guys have this scene set in your your mind, I hope so, because Peter and John were uh, square smack dab, as my dad used to say, in the middle of some serious persecution, uh, some scary stuff. If you can put yourself in those shoes, it is a scary endeavor to think about being surrounded by the people who killed Jesus. The very same government, the same same officials. It's a very scary proposition indeed. And so, um, hey, Steve, you want to go ahead and hit that door? And so, the ruling council of Israel has made a determination that had the force of law in that society. It was a force that could get you killed. I can probably wonder and probably come to my own conclusion, correct conclusion, that y'all have never had your life at stake when it comes to Jesus. I bet you you never had the police come and say, hey, you're going to go to jail if you profess Christ. I thankfully have never had that happen. I've had some serious, uh, scary stuff happen outside this country, 
but we have never probably, as for the most part, can't really relate to John and Peter in that regard. But let's go ahead and just start off with what the Bible has to say in verse 21 and 22. This will become the basis of further action against believers. So I want to set the tone as what the, the future is going to hold for believers. It's going to be some serious persecution. So what's going to, let's go ahead and see what's going on in verse 21 and 22. Somebody read it really loud. If he had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God after what had happened. For the man on whom this miracle of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. Whoa. Okay, so... So Luke implies that the leaders had the desire to take them out. <laughs> Did you see that? They threatened them further, but then let them go, finding no basis on what to punish them. Well, they had done what? What, have they, what, what was their offense based upon what Scripture shows us? What was it? Do you guys remember? Yeah, yeah there was a healing. Yeah, right on campus, on jurisdiction that they weren't cool with. They weren't good with what they were saying. Things like the resurrection of the dead, remember? That was a no-no. Well, first, the apostles had violated their clear rule of prohibition. Uh, on the other hand, they had healed a man which was praise, which was praiseworthy. And here's what I'm saying when I say that, is... When you get when you do something that the Holy Spirit tells you to do, it usually leads to some persecution. Well, as we can see here, a very strange outcome came came about. Praise, glory. Right? Hold on that thought. Well, secondly, the result of their miracle was a public outcry of praise. Strange, right? So this, this, this man didn't just get healed, which was amazing, but now you have this crowd getting rambunctious. How are they getting rambunctious? How, what, what, what's being displayed? Praise. It's not just mass chaos. It's not just, hey, let's, let's rip the city apart, as we see in the, in the news headlines. You know, let's, let's get all hyped up and, and emotional about some injustice or some sort of whatever and start breaking windows. No, they started what? Lifting their hands, I can just see them. We're praising God, glorifying Him. So they admonished the men and then let them go. Isn't that interesting that they didn't know what to do in the court because of so much praise? Let that sink in for a second. I wonder what would happen if the church spent more time praising, <laughs> you know, made more noise uh, in the society on praising God and what He's done and saving uh, a sinner like us. Naturally, Peter and John returned to the other apostles after this crazy scene, who have probably been worried sick. I mean, I could just imagine how worried they are. Uh, and they have serious, some serious stories to tell. I mean, I would be like, okay, I got to get this off my chest. I got to tell you about this, you know. Uh, this this is a very serious um, set of emotion and drama being displayed. So we're going to go ahead and look at verse 23 now. And I want you guys, I want you, somebody to read this and, ta and take your time 
because this is a very important passage right here. They're all important, but 23 through 31, let's take a look at that together. Do it. Go ahead. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants who continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's a pretty crazy, dramatic little statement being made right there. Do you see a bunch of things? Well, first off, I want I want just get extra bonus points if you point out what psalm is being quoted in this passage. Two. Oh boy, good job. Psalm two. Good job. You get you get another sticker. You're gonna Bible's gonna be covered in stickers. Man, good job. Anytime you see any kind of quotes in your scripture, in your Bible, and, and asterisks or however your Bible's laid out, and it says that they they spoke from the mouth of our father David, it's going to be most typically in Psalm. And this is a passage that they, as a Jewish community, would have had memorized, much like the Lord's Prayer would be for a Protestant. Our Father, our art in heaven. I mean, we can just quote it easily. Well, this would be easily quoted as a group of people. Isn't this interesting? So they praise him. They, the response of the believers in the city to the apostles' release is to take their relief to the Lord in praise. They took their relief to the Lord in praise. Let me say that one more time. They took their relief to the Lord in praise. Hmm. This is an interesting response. They praise him for his grace in releasing these two important leaders of the early church. And their prayer centers around Psalm 2. Hmm. Reading the entire psalm gives us a better sense of how this psalm became such an important verse, passage, psalm to the Christians in that day. They were so happy at this outcome, they just burst this passage out. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Go ahead and go backwards, and hit reverse, and go back to your psalm, uh, to psalm in your, in your Bible. Psalm 2, verse 1. Here it is. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, <clears throat> Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then, verse 5, <clears throat> he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, 
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my, what? Son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earth and wear. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. First off, who is this person? that's being talked about. Does anybody know? Jesus. It's Jesus. Yep. You are correct. If you, if you see Jesus being pronounced here, this is God the Father proclaiming a promise to his son that he will inherit the earth. The Psalms, this psalm describes how the world will oppose the, that Messiah but he will triumph nonetheless. The second psalm, the psalm, uh, the, the second psalm, is a description of the resistance that the Messiah will experience in the final seven years of tribulation as he returns physically himself. He, he's materializing, he's coming physically, stepping onto the earth. This is that moment, guys, Psalm 2. This hasn't happened yet. And the psalm also makes clear that the Father is behind the scenes directing the whole thing. Crazy, right? He will give the Son, Jesus, everything. Can I put a pronunciation on everything? Everything. <laughs> everything belongs to Jesus. If you are hearing me right now, I want that to sink in. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, this is something to really understand as a person and as your station in life. Jesus is king, y'all. <laughs> he is the ruler of the world. He rules the universe. He is Lord of all, and this psalm is proclaiming this, okay? So let's bring it back to the scene. He will, literally, by the way, he will give this world to Jesus as an inheritance for a thousand years. By application, these early believers now, sitting there, correctly recognize, I want you to pick up on this, they've connected the dots. There's a lot of dots being connected in this book. This is great because these early believers correctly connected the dots that the Lord was at work in that situation that just happened. They didn't wrongly connect the dots. They connected the dots correctly. How did they do that? The Holy Spirit. There's, there ain't no connecting of the dots without the Holy Spirit. Am I right? Though Jewish leaders were dismissing and challenging the claims of the Messiah just as they did to Jesus, this is my, th this is my thing right here. Bottom line, the Lord's going to have the last laugh. 
every time. Doesn't matter. And this situation, no matter how bad it was or how bad it could have been, it is the situation that is under control by God. Period. There is no such thing as out of control. There is no such thing. As they hear the apostles' report, it's clear that the believers put this two and two together. They come to understand that this trial was a part of God's plan for the church. Keep in mind that the persecution of Peter and John was a crossroads for the church. This was a watershed moment. It probably shocked the heck out of them. <laughs> Quite literal. It would have scared me to death. Why? Like, put yourself in this context. Don't just fly over this for a second. This is a very terrible situation because you're ask, you are now coming to the realization that if you have renounced your citizenship with Jerusalem and being baptized and repenting, that now you're on the losing side. You know what I mean when I say that. You're under the, the I'm going to maybe not live side. <laughs> I'm maybe going to get hurt side. I might go to jail side. And I might even end up on a cross side. Do you see? And not to mention, they could have totally lost faith because of the bad things happening, letting that dictate whether or not God really can be trusted. Am I ringing a bell? Have you ever looked at your family and the terrible things that have happened in your life, and you've said to yourself, can I actually trust you, God? Can I actually put my money in your bank account? Or should I go and withdraw it all? Should I go and like handle this on my own? Can't you see that same exact logic is happening in these believers? And what did they, Luke, record for us? What was their response? Glory. Praise. Woo, man. Please. I, I am needing that response to the trials in my life right now. This pros the prospect of persecution literally sometimes is unthinkable. And the news that the apostles were under inquiry was probably a great anxiety-ridden proposition. Oh no, honey, this is not good. Things are going to potentially get really bad. I think about, you know, the reign of Hitler when they come and and uh, descend upon Poland. The similar thing of my faith is going to get us killed. See what I mean? Ha again, has that ever happened to you? I doubt it. So we really have to reach in to understand the context of this passage. So the apostles were released. The Spirit connected the dots for the church and brought them to Psalm 2. The persecution that started with the Sanhedrin was a reflection of the hatred that Christ himself experienced in his first coming, they saw that same like blood, blood curdling anger that led Christ to Christ's crucifixion. And the church quotes this psalm to emphasize that they understand that the world will resist the message of the gospel. Now, I want to, I want, I want you guys to just see something real quick. Anytime, this is a side note. Anytime the Holy Spirit moves, works, anytime there is a job description that the Holy Spirit has, He will always lead to the Word. 
always, never not in Scripture. Test me on this. What do I mean by word? I mean the biblical definition of the word. Jesus Christ, the word. Look at what just happened a few minutes ago in Scripture. The Holy Spirit, remember me saying connecting the dots? What I mean is, they connected the dots through the power of the Holy Spirit by what? Private revelation? Nope. Some aha moment or a uh, inspirational goosebumps emotion? No. The Word of God was brought to mind. Into the point where it was the expression of their praise. How incredible is that? So be careful. The, a very good, stern warning I could I wish I could tell all my friends right now, because this is sweeping over Christendom, is the Holy Spirit always will point to God's Word. Period. He will never point to nature. He will never point to your emotions. He will never point to created things. He will never point to idols. He will always point to the Word. I'm moving on. The Father is in control. Here's the point. Isn't it? The Father is in control. If you're going to take away one thing from what I'm saying today, the Father is in control. In verse 27 and 28, the church states plainly that the events that led to Christ's death were predestined. Ooh, there's a hot debated uh, <laughs> word. Predestined by God to occur. Specifically, the church declares that the conspiracy relied on Gentiles, they mean the Romans, and, and the people of Israel. They're not just blaming those Gentile dogs. Now they're really getting it. They're saying... Oh, Pontius Pilate is in control, under control. Uh, Barabbas, under control. The thief on the cross, under control. The whole scene is under control by God. Both Jews and Gentiles were culpable in the death of Christ. So it's, that's a culpable is a term, uh, a, like a judicial term. Their, their hands are bloody. The hands are dirty. They're complicit. But in verse 28, they say that God was ultimately the one bringing about these circumstances. And in verse 29, they appeal to God to notice that the persecution David spoke of had come to rest upon them. What is specifically going on when they say, Take note. Did that pop out in your in your eyes when you read that? Take note. I don't typically say that to God. I don't usually say, God, take note of people's actions. You know, in the Greek, this is always, I always write, this is a great exercise. You write down these, these phrases that pop out and then go check out the Greek. Another great resource is Blue Letter Bible. I love doing the inter interlinear uh, lexicon with that. It's right there, easy with your phone. So go check that out. Well, I did. And specifically what they're saying is, look upon. Look upon. The implication is that the Lord will take revenge. Yikes. Secondly, they grant boldness to continue speaking God's word. This is what they're asking God. Could you please 
just give us boldness. Wait a second. Have you ever prayed? Have you? Let's put yourself in that those scenario. What would you pray in that scenario? For safety at all. Safety. Yeah. yeah. I mean, please don't let something bad happen to my kids. I mean, selfishly, I want to say that. I mean, uh, uh, it, it, self-righteously, I would like to say that I would pray for somebody else. But deep down, I'm trying to save my own skin. So at very best, I would say something like that. I certainly wouldn't pray for boldness. Again, there's some supernatural stuff happening right here. So I'm, I am fascinated, so mind-blowing fascinated at how wrong we get prayer. Because check this out. Prayer is, is not for the removal of persecution. I'm just talking about this little, this little Petri dish here. Did you notice that? That it's not just for the removal of hard things. Instead, their prayer is asking God to give them the courage to keep on speaking in the face of opposition. I find that so fascinating. Am I saying that praying for safety is, is a sin? No. I'm saying that in this perspective, in this context, we get a real good look at some serious, authentic move of the Holy Spirit and what that will birth in you. That will birth in you something beyond saving your own skin, brothers and sisters. It will just make you go even louder. I, I had an individual pastor one time ask me, we had this huge worship service and it was amazing. Like all these people were, you know, in the aisles dancing and it was it was in a Baptist church, it never happened before. And everybody was nervous, like what's happening? And I looked out and oh my goodness, it was like Pandora's box, you know? And I thought to myself, wow, this is kind of fun. This is getting really good. And afterwards the pastor comes up to me and goes, ah, what, what was that? You know, what, that was really crazy. What was that? And I said, that's the Holy Ghost, man, you know? And he, and he was like, well, man, like, that would be really great if we could do that every Sunday, you know? And as if it was like up to me to do this, you know? And, and I said, well, one thing's for sure. If, you, if it is the Holy Spirit, look for boldness. Because now the outplay of the Holy Spirit is always leading us to the Word. And once you get led to the Word, boldness comes out. Doesn't it? Insecurities get washed away. Your your trajectory in this eternal game gets informed, doesn't it? There's a bunch of things that happen. Your perspective changes. Truth is defined when you get exposed to Jesus. You're edified. You don't need to take a class for that. You just hang out with Jesus and you're instantly edified. And you get specific course corrections. And all of this can happen, and boldness, can happen with just one little encounter with the Holy Spirit. The biggest, burliest football player guy can be taken down to ashes, and the smallest little, little tinkerbell of a human <laughs> can be given the, the, an operatic voice, just with the, the touch of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at John. Let's look at 
John, uh, what John told is telling the in the uh, Gospel of John, telling of Jesus's words concerning persecution. And I have this down here. It's John fifteen twenty. I'll read it. it. Says this. Remember the word that I said to you: a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Whoa. So finally, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible stuff right there. Saying that if you are a, a follower of Christ, a good litmus test is, are you, are you a, a, a herald of his word? Finally, they ask for wonders and powers to accompany the proclamation of the name of Jesus. This is just in this final section of chapter 4. They are seeking to see God manifest his power to confirm their testimony. Don't we all? Plus, powerful signs will help overcome the fear of uh, that persecution will produce. Won't it? Like, hey, you can't, can't knock serious miracles. The result of the prayer was an answer in the affirmative sense. Isn't it? The ground was shaken. God gave manifestations to that group, filling them with the Holy Spirit. They spoke in boldness. So through, so through the first four chapters of Acts, Luke has planted the seeds for the rest of the book, y'all. I'm just giving you a little hint. He shows a new institution being erected, established among the Jews. It's accompanied by signs and wonders to propel the gospel forward in the face of opposition, led by remarkable powers, men with remarkable powers, rejected by the Jewish leadership. They're constantly getting rejected in the days to come. In the, in the pages to come, they're getting literally beat up. They're called to preach God's word in the face of opposition. The entire book of Acts is a journal about how hard it was that's a very gross un uh that's a very unex it's a very simple explanation but it is a very true explanation of how hard it was in those first hundred years but guess what they also did throughout this expectation of hardship they expected something all right you know what it was the lord's return at any moment any moment, this entire time, they were expecting the Lord's return. Think about this for a second. So I'm going to go ahead and ask somebody to read chapter 4, 32, 33, uh, sorry, 30, 32 through 37, please. Not all at once. <laughs> 32 to 37, right here. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which 
came to son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. There it is. So get get this. Luke transitions to an interesting little tantalizing uh, economic picture of uh, of how the early church was combining property. Luke sets the scene here in chapter 4, but the real impact is recorded in chapter 5, which we're going to talk about before we get out of here. There are a fair number of things going on here we must examine. First, Jerusalem, there was a huge growing congregation of believers. They apparently worshiped together and shared in their property to help to help support one another, as we can see. Remember that the church in Jerusalem was pretty much impoverished, very, very poor. They were very numerous, but very poor. Over 8,000 believers at this point, according to what Scripture says. Within, within such a large group, this kind of sharing would have been very helpful in maintaining a common standard of living among the believers. It, it, uh, it flattened out the linear, like the, the, the standard of living would be normalized. Historic records tell us, that's not even biblical, tell us that this time was difficult economically for the city of Jerusalem. The ranks of the needy were going and growing at an alarming rates, and the Roman government didn't know what to do. But Luke says that there wasn't a needy person among the church because of their sharing. Interesting, don't you think? So what would Rome think about this? I mean, what, what would you think if you were the governor of Rome and you were literally having people starving to death and the church erupts and now all of a sudden there's an there's an a, a utopian economic model that's thriving and growing inside of their desolate horror uh, horror show of a government it's an interesting thing to think about isn't it what prompted the shared love and self-sacrifice, they're asking? What's going on with those wackos? What, who would ever do that? Well, look, uh, thank goodness for us, we have Scripture to tell us what's going on. They were one heart and one soul. You should write that down. One heart and one soul. That's not just poetic. That's real. That's legit. Yes, one heart, one soul. These were really innocent times. Think of it as like a dating relationship. You know, like when you first met your wife or your husband, everybody was just like, oh, you look so great. You know, it's your first date. and you're, Oh, let's do this and let's do that. And everybody's happy. It was like the blush of, of an innocent faith that still was sitting there driving as a force in the body and the power of the Spirit was holding the body together. I can almost visualize that. I've never been a part of a church quite like that, but I've been a part of a lot of church plants where everybody's so excited about what God's doing, and oh man, I mean, they show up early, they stay late, they're going out to eat together, their children are playing together. But then sometime, some, some times pass, right? As we're going to see, and some things start happening. 
all this unity the apostles were giving great witness to the resurrection of Jesus through all of this unity, through their own miraculous powers. I want you guys to follow me here for a second. The proof that the apostles were the only ones to show these miraculous powers is in view right here. It's very important because there's some heresy flying around all over the, all over the church today that there's modern-day apostles still with inherited uh, through their DNA, Gentile modern-day prophets, apostles who have supernatural powers endowed by God. Thank goodness we see in the book of Acts the close of that, along with the canon. This is a very hotly debated thing because of the hungry power that humans have, the power-hungry humans that fill our churches, specifically leaders sometimes. So Luke connects these two points, that these powers that were, were accompanying the early church were specifically given a, uh, a function inside of the selected apostles. And they were able to use these in the growing church. The people immediately recognized that the apostles were appointed as leaders by themselves? No. Jesus. Jesus himself. And the powers these men held were proof that God had vested them with his, his authority they could declare things in the name of Jesus. They held the keys to the kingdom. Very important right here, Matthew 16, 19. What do I mean by the keys of the kingdom? I will give you the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19. It says, of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is not for general population. This is specific, y'all, to the apostles in this era of the human race. Specifically designed by God in a specific function. The apostles were uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit to make determinations on earth concerning spiritual matters as Christ's representative. Tread lightly, y'all, because this brings up a lot of crazy debate. Because it just it offends people to think that I wouldn't have the same powers that the apostles have. Can I ask for just a couple more minutes before you write me off? <laughs> that these men were necessary to the survival and growth of the early church as ordained by God. Not you, not me, but God had a plan and we get to see it unfold before our eyes. And they held authority, these guys. And they, and, they, and they had power to accomplish a very difficult task. And they will be expected to serve as an example in everything they do, including the way they die. So before you get all offended by the fact that maybe you don't have the same powers as Peter, just remember how Peter dies. Maybe you won't be raising your hands so high, wanting the same exact powers. They were uniquely given this. So if someone in the congregation had a need, what happened? Others would respond by selling property and bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet. Now, that doesn't mean they came in through their billfold at the feet of the apostles. This is a, state, this is a, a euphemism. 
that literally says that they took a large sum and gave it to them, gave it to the church, the institution, the people in authority. In Greek, the phrase suggests that not all the proceeds were necessarily brought to the apostles, but only what was required to cover the need. And the acts of bringing it to the feet of the apostles reflects, reflects their view that the apostles were Christ's representative in the, in the earth. I mean, that's just like the way it is. Another way to see it is where that these were gifts given to God represented by the apostles. They're not giving them to the gods being the apostles. They're giving them to the apostles as God's representative, one God. Mana, the God. The chapter ends with an example of one man who follows this practice. Who's his, what's his name? Joseph. Oh boy, Nate's got a, even the he gets special special attention. Joseph of of Cyprus was his name, but they called him Barnabas. Wow, Bible trivia. Don't ever play Bible trivia with Nate over here. Barnabas becomes an example of the one who follows this practice of what we just got done talking about, faithfully. We didn't really need Barnabas's example, did we? We don't need that in this, this story. Since the general practice had already been described, why did, why did he bring a Barnabas? Interesting, isn't it? Well, Luke chose to highlight Barnabas. His obedience, specifically, because... He will become a central character in this book. Barnabas is the cousin of Mark, the author of Mark's gospel. But you didn't know that, Nate. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just giving you guys some hard time trivia. Barnabas is the cousin of Mark, the one who penned the gospel of Mark. He was, the, he was one of the 500 people said to have seen and met the resurrected Jesus. And as a result, he had the gift of apostleship. Check out Acts 14, guys. He had the gift of apostleship because he met the resurrection, resurrected Christ. He will become a traveling companion to Paul. If you guys have read ahead, he's instrumental in establishing the early church with Paul. But you guys remember the fallout. In Galatians, we are told in Galatians 2, that he falls prey to hypocrisy and legalism. So this is a very important thing to see, that Barnabas in early Jerusalem, he led by example, responding to the, here's your takeaway, you respond to the needs of the body of Christ. And submitting to the Lord through the leadership of the apostles. You don't go rogue. So here's, the, here's where we're going to end. This is the craziest story that totally turns people's, you know, just raises eyebrows. So let's somebody let's just let's just dive into it. Chapter five. Turn the page, chapter five, verse one through six, please. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived, contrived, conceived, conceived, contrived, contrived, whatever, <laughs> this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Well, good day at church there. I mean, uh, wow, something like that happened at church next weekend. I, I would be pretty intense, right? Well, Luke's account of Ananias and Sapphira represents of something really important. The first time that something accounted for here, the first serious sin. The first serious sin in the church. There are two contrasts between chapter 4 and 5. Give you a little hint. First, there's the contrast between honest Barnabas and dishonest Ananias and Sapphira. See that? Contrast. Second one, there's, there's a contrast between external threats hmm, and what? Internal threats. And the Lord will protect his church from both. Can I emphasize that? He is not caught off guard. At first, the story proceeds in keeping with Barnabas. They sell a property. You see that? But then a conspiracy ensues. They conspire to hold back some of the proceeds of the sale. It's just like any other sale. You made some proceeds. You have this chunk of money sitting in your bank account. And you are tempted. Just hold back a little bit. Even though the need's great. We're, we're obviously going to need a little slush fund. They place only some of the money before the apostles, it says. But they claim to have brought it all. Whoa, there it is. Don't pass over that. That's the key. That's the chain, the, the game changer. The language in verse two is reminiscent of the story of, of Achan and Joshua going back clear in the Old Testament uh, catacombs here. But quick story is this as the nation of Israel entered the land and began to push back the enemies in the land, Achan held back some of the spoils of Jericho which Joshua declared belonging to the Lord's temple. Like Achan, Ananias had held back something that should have been designated for the Lord's use. Joshua was Achan's apostle in that day. And he suffered death. He died for his deceit. And when Ananias chose to lie, lie to the apostle, Peter says he was lying to God. He was professing love for the body of Christ when, in fact, he had little regard for anything other than his own reputation and image. So his intent was to say he gave it all, but he only gave some. And there it is. He wants the applause. The issue was hypocrisy. Don't you see that? so that their image before the brethren was enhanced without the need of real sacrifice. He wanted to walk into the building and everybody clap because of how much he gave. Ooh, that rings a bell. Peter instantly discerned the deception. 
Darn it. Another spiritual component of apostolic power. It's not just healing people. It's discernment. So he literally thought he was going to bamboozle God. He thought this was a club. He thought this was a, uh, an investment club. A Ponzi scheme. First, he says, Satan has instigated this desire to lie to the Holy Spirit. So Peter says this to this man. That's, oh no, you, Satan's doing that. But Ananias is the one who chose to act in sin, so how can that be? Who's in charge here anyway? Chicken or the egg? Here we see the enemy's power to undermine the church and his obvious interests in doing so. Let me explain. He seeks, you know the verse, he seeks to destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. Devour. But here's, here's what I'm saying. It's exactly like a sheep pen. He seeks weak, weak members of the body and entices them to act against the unity and love of the saints. Satan does not need to do anything to create unbelievers. Can I say that one more time? He doesn't need to do anything to create unbelievers. He just uses them like puppets, literally in Scripture. I'm not making this up. This is what Satan does. He doesn't need to work hard at creating unbelief. And he has no power, by the way, biblically, we know this, that he has no power over believers except through external means like temptation, fear, and deception. And there's other things, but those are give you a good, good palette of his base toolbox. A believer's defense to the schemes of the enemy are these. Here it is. Prayer and God's Word. That's it. Simple. Prayer and God's Word. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. That is an interesting thing to think about. Remember when Jesus said, as cunning as serpents? and innocent as doves, that, that phrase in the Greek actually means to actually know what the serpent's going to do. The Holy Spirit will actually give you the insight, like Peter, discernment. You will actually understand that you can be, you can literally see what he's doing. And as soon as you see what he's doing, you can actually go the other way. His schemes is the word that Paul uses. Later, he says in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, it says this, Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the darkness, this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Considering what Peter tells Ananias, it seems he would have been safe had he simply decided to keep some money and make clear his choice. You know what I'm saying? 
Like maybe I would just hold back half, but I would just come with half and say to the apostles, hey, my wife and I are holding back half. He would have been alive, you know, but he did. Did he? The sin was holding back the money. Uh, the sin was not holding back the money. The sin was lying to God. Still, to hold back the money would have reflected a selfishness, wouldn't it? Ananias understands this, but rather than address his selfishness, he looks for a way to cover it up. Don't we all? Just like little kids, little, little brats, we just look for a blame game, don't we? So as Peter was speaking, Ananias falls over dead. Did Peter act to take Ananias' life? There is nothing in the text to clearly connect Peter to the death of this man. Perhaps Peter was surprised too. But Peter ends by saying, you lied to God, which sounds like a judgment declaration or a verdict, doesn't it? And then came the penalty. He bound something and he loosed something. Based on the next account of Sapphira, it seems that Peter had a hand in the process, didn't he? Yeah. If so, then God was allowing Peter this latitude as a part of the authority given to him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why was this sin worthy of such an extreme response, y'all? Seems pretty dramatic, doesn't it? Like, let it go, man. It's just money. Well, first, all sin is worthy of death. Don't forget that. Romans 6.23 and many times, your sin results in death, whether immediate or delayed. Secondly, this was likely the first major issue of sin in the young church. So you got to nip it in the bud, as they say. As such, many would naturally watch to see what the effect of such behavior would be. Going like, what's mom and dad going to do about little Billy lying to him about sneaking in last night? They're, they're keeping their mouth shut, and they're watching. Would the apostles have the authority over such things? Do they take? Did, are they going to take you to the courts or to the Pharisees, like usual? If this sin were left unchecked in the early church, imagine how long before all respect for authority would be gone. Gone. The strongest response... To the strong response to Ananias' sin was necessary to make clear the seriousness and legitimacy of the apostles' authority. And I will end with this last section, Acts 5, 7 through 11. Let's see what happens to Sapphira. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. What? <laughs> and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And he said, yes. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear swept over the whole church and over the whole and, and and over all who heard of these things so an hour later his wife arrives with the knowledge without knowledge of her husband's predicament guess why nobody's saying a word i'm not going to talk about it somebody just died people are falling over dead 
I'm not going to I'm not going to say a word. There's probably no not even a reason to warn her because no one would have assumed that she had anything to do with Ananias's deception either. But she knew. She knew. She says, "Well, no, that's all I got. That's all that's all the money we received." Lie. That was a lie. She decided to give her loyalty to her husband rather than to God in this text. Remember, she didn't know her husband was dead. When Peter named the price, she must have known that her husband had already told Peter the lie because he didn't, he didn't mistake the price. He knew the price. Rather than admit her husband had lied, she agreed with the statement probably to protect the reputation of her dead husband that she didn't know was dead. Honoring your husband or wife comes after honoring the Lord. I, had, I still have to learn that lesson. I have to remind myself my spouse is not Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. So now, now Jesus will use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will use my wife a lot <laughs> to speak to me <laughs> in very special ways. But honoring God comes before honoring your spouse. Contrary to popular belief. Peter's response suggests he had made no predetermination concerning her guilt. He wasn't sure if she had been involved in the decision or not. When she answered, she incriminated herself. Based on her answer, she was convicted as was her husband. Ananias showed loyalty to money over God, and Sapphira showed loyalty to her husband over the Lord. This situation achieved the desired result. Fear. Am I right? Fear. Great fear swept among the people. The, the rest of the chapter shows how the great fear that I just said plays out in the culture and the effectiveness of the church. Huh. So this is a very strange turn of events, isn't it? It's not just this fairy tale. There's some fear in here. Fear of God's authority. And with that, we out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm out. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for this wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity to, to gather together with brothers and sisters um, and take in what you have for us in your word. Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do with us this week. We pray that we just take, take away all the things that you want us to take away from this passage, this study this book, and it's, it's only by the, the working of your Holy Spirit that we will even understand anything. So we're going to submit ourselves, we're laying ourselves down right now for just that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.